And there's an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along with the sermon this morning. When you go in search of a person with wisdom, what do you expect to find? You know what I mean? Let's say, I'll explain it. Let's say you and I go on a pilgrimage to find a renowned guru. It could be a famous theologian or philosopher, or it could even be a world-renowned surgeon with expertise in whatever medical condition you're suffering from. Let's say we go and we try to find this person with wisdom. We would probably hope to be able to ask any question and get a profound answer in return. When we seek out a wise man or a wise woman, don't we typically conceive of such a person as someone with answers? Well, I'd like to let you in on a little secret this morning which is that true wisdom, the wisdom of God, does not require a person to know the answers to every question. True wisdom is way more down to earth than that. And that's good news because it means that any of us can become wise by God's standards. We're drawing near to the end of the book of Proverbs in our sermon series And this morning, we'll look at much of chapter 30. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 516. And in this chapter, I'd like to show you this morning that the wise aren't necessarily brilliant. They just know what to look for. That's where we're heading. God's wisdom is not about knowing the answers to every question, It's more often about simply knowing what to expect and what to look for. Especially, we'll see on your outline, that a wise person knows to look for what happens when a generation follows its heart. And a wise person knows knows to look for what happens when a generation moves toward the Lord. That's where we're heading. Let me pray for our time in God's word. Our Father, we ask that you would please grant us understanding by your spirit that we might see and grasp your word and the wisdom you have for us. That we might see Jesus and we might follow him and through him draw closer toward you. Please bless our time here together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the wise aren't necessarily brilliant. They just know what to look for. And the first thing they look for is what happens when a generation follows its heart. Let me read verses 11 through 17 of Proverbs chapter 30. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth 
are swords whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied. Four, never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by vultures. This is God's word to us this morning. This passage shows us what happens when a generation follows its heart. This poem is made up of three stanzas and they all hang together as a unit because the first stanza, verses 11 through 14, describe the eyes and the teeth of those who curse fathers and mothers. And the third stanza, verse 17, describes the eyes of those who mock fathers and mothers. So the bookends of this poem show us that the poem is concerned with those who care more about themselves than about previous generations. Those who curse fathers and mothers and those who mock fathers and mothers. And I should explain why I'm hanging on to this word generation in this sermon. This is a generation that cares about themselves. You see, in in the ESV translation that we use here, verses 11 through 14, it mentions those who curse their fathers. Verse 12, those who are clean. But if you have a footnote there, you can see that the Hebrew says uh, that there is a generation who curses their fathers and mothers. The, the, The translation up in the text here conceals a repetition in the Hebrew text, of the word normally translated as generation. And if you're looking at a different translation, such as the CSB, you can see that. Verse 11, they say, there is a generation that curses its father. Verse 12, there is a generation that is pure in its own eyes. Verse 13, there is a generation, how haughty its eyes. And verse 14, there is a generation whose teeth are swords. The point here is simply that these verses are not focusing primarily on individuals and their bad attitudes. This poem is focused on society as a whole. And in a similar way, the Lord Jesus labeled his own society as a perverse and wicked generation. And the Apostle Paul referred to the human societies of his day as a present evil age. Okay, that's how this poem is talking about the societies of the earth. So we ought to read this poem with a view towards social maturity and broad cultural attitudes. There will obviously be some exceptions to the principles here in these verses. But this poem is not addressing the exceptions for us. It is addressing the ebb and flow of a culture, a generation. And in particular, it is a generation that curses and mocks 
fathers and mothers. In other words, this is a generation that cares more about itself than about previous generations. A generation, that is, that believes it has arrived at the final truth. That this generation is on the right side of history. That this generation has evolved into a higher way of life and a way from archaic and ancient models of human flourishing. In sum, this poem is talking about a generation that has trained itself to follow its own heart. And when following one's heart becomes a substitute for the fear of the Lord, the result is not wisdom, but an embarrassing foolishness. A foolishness that, in verse 11, curses previous generations and cannot recognize the wisdom of what came before. A foolishness that, in verse 12, thinks of itself more highly than it ought to and cannot even notice the lingering stains of immorality. This is a foolishness that, in verse 13, looks to the horizon but can't notice what's right in front of us. And this is a foolishness in verse 14 that proclaims a desire to love humanity and to help the poor, but ends up establishing regulations and practices that actually devour the poor. To give just one modern example of this last point, verse 14, it has been documented time and again that mass foreign aid to poor countries makes the givers of the aid feel really great about themselves. But it leaves the receivers of the aid worse off than they were before. Because as soon as the nice people in helicopters go back home, the militias come in and steal all the loot and hold it for ransom away from the common people. But there's not much in this poem that, that should be all that shocking. In verses 11 to 14 here, in particular, the poem is merely observing the existence of such generations in human history. Verses 15 and 16 are where those observations begin to pay off for us. Because it's in these verses, 15 and 16, that the wise poet shows us what we ought to look for. What are the signs that a generation has not been fearing the Lord, that a generation has been following its own heart, and that it is running headfirst into the self-destruction of its own foolishness? That's where we get to verse 15. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. It's a wonderful Bible verse, isn't it? What is going on here? This picture of the leech who has two daughters, perhaps it might be hilarious if it weren't so tragic. A leech, you see, loves to suck the life out of things. And a leech is never alone. 
He always has friends and family members with him. His two daughters are so utterly demanding that their names are give and give. The point of this crazy little parable is found in the rest of verse 15 and then on into verse 16. Because when we look at the world, we can't help but notice a number of things that are never satisfied. That includes Mr. Leach and his little ladies named Give 1 and Give 2. But it also includes, in verse 16, the grave, which is what the Hebrew word Sheol means, the grave which is never satisfied with the number of souls who have died and it always wants more of them. Tragically, many of you know full well how unsatisfied the barren womb is. Infertility is a terrible affliction suffered by the people of God ever since Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel in the book of Genesis. A woman with a barren womb desperately wishes for God to grant children and she needs friends to walk with her and to weep with her. Similarly, the land is never satisfied with water. It can always take more. And fire never says enough. As long as it finds fuel, it will burn. And in verse 17... We're back to a generation with an evil eye toward its ancestors. But in this final stanza, we're told of the fate of such a generation. And children, for those of you who are listening carefully this morning, verse 17 right here would be the perfect picture for you to draw in your notes. That picture would show a flock of ravens pecking at children's eyeballs for refusing to obey their mothers. Please draw that picture. I would like to see it <laughs> afterward. Pulling all of this together, the beginning and ending of this poem describes a generation that has been following its heart and that middle section, verses 15 and 16, contains the punchline. Because this is that which befalls such a generation is perpetual dissatisfaction and sucking the life out of everything like a leech. This is the fruit of a culture following its sinful heart. And the wise know to watch for this. The wise are able to recognize this dissatisfaction for what it is. So when, for example, families are falling apart because both spouses prioritize their career and their wealth above all else and they work and work and work and they have no time left for the children or for each other, we can see the deep dissatisfaction in play. Even the genie in Disney's Aladdin could sense this deep dissatisfaction in our generation when he spoke about the men who found his lamp and made their wishes. He said, by the time the guy gets to me, 
He pretty much knows what he wants. And it generally has to do with tons of money and power. Do me a favor. Do not drink from that cup. I promise you there is not enough money and power on earth for you to be satisfied. So you see, the wise aren't necessarily brilliant. They just know what to look for. And when they see a culture with perpetual dissatisfaction, they know they're looking at a generation that has followed its heart. And the wise know to stay away from the love of self that leads to such dissatisfaction. That's the bad news this morning. So are we doomed to just get caught up in the arrogance and self-love of our generation? Is there any way to break the destructive patterns and find something healthier? Well, the good news is that the wise aren't necessarily brilliant. They just know what to look for. And they look for what happens when a generation follows its heart so they can avoid these patterns themselves. But they also know to look for what happens when a generation moves toward the Lord so that they themselves can walk in the fear of the Lord. And so that's the rest of this passage this morning. Point number two. What happens when a generation moves toward the Lord? So we're now going to look at four poetic stanzas in, in the rest of our text. And we're going to look at them one at a time. The literary device that holds these stanzas together is that each one of them has a list of four things. He says, there are three things. No, actually, there are four. It's just a poetic way of saying, I'm going to tell you about four things. And each list of four things gives us something specific to look for, something to observe in the world to help us turn away from our self-love and to find a better way to promote human flourishing. The first poem observes four things whose way, he'll repeat that word, way, whose way is incomprehensible. Because when you're moving toward the Lord, foolishness just doesn't make sense anymore. Here's verses 18 through 20. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Okay, the poet picks out four things in creation that have a mysterious way. There's the way of an eagle and the way of a serpent, the way of a ship and the way of young love. And I can relate to some of his astonishment here. On our vacation last week, I couldn't stop watching a snake moving across the rocks. Now, I know there's a biological and a physical explanation for how that works for how that thing slithers, but I never cease to be amazed by it. I can just watch the creepy beauty of it at length and trying to figure out how the thing moves up and sideways and over and around, and it it's too wonderful for me. I don't understand it. 
And it, it's cute here how the poet lands on young love as his fourth thing. The way of a man with a virgin. It's encouraging to know that, that love and romance was just as mysterious and thrilling back then as it is today. But he makes a surprising turn in verse 20. And I don't think he's changing the, the topic because he repeats that word way to let us know here's another way that I don't understand. He's, he's saying, what is he doing in verse 20? I think he's saying that the whole point of those four things in verses 18 and 19 is that some things are simply incomprehensible. Some ways of doing things will never make sense. And that goes not only for sailing ships and soaring eagles, but it also goes in verse 20 for a culture's immoral sexual ethics. It just doesn't make sense. Why would we do that? And in our culture, it is considered as nothing to commit adultery. If you grow tired of your spouse, just find someone else who makes you feel better about yourself. If you're tired of waiting for a spouse, just hook, with some, hook up with someone this weekend. If you don't think you fit in with antiquated traditions of older generations and fathers and mothers, then just remake yourself. Find your identity in a more enlightened orientation. Do you like people of the opposite sex? Okay, great. Do you like people of the same sex? Fine, go for it. Or have you felt bound by the chains of commitment and devotion to just one partner and you'd prefer a more open group deal? Fine. The only rule for a generation following its heart is you do you. Just find yourself. And define yourself in any which way you choose. And once you find that definition, just do that. Go ahead and eat from that table and wipe your mouth and claim to have done nothing wrong. As verse 20 says. Because at least you were true to yourself, right? And that's the most important objective the highest virtue of a culture following its heart. But for those who wish to be wise, such ways of doing things won't make sense. If you struggle with same-sex attraction or with sexual confusion, you're not alone, and I am so glad you're here. You are most welcome here, and I would love to speak with you further about it later. But please consider, what sort of a future is there for a generation that declines to get males and females together into committed, bonded partnerships? We see the fruit of that, of such a generation, not only in the frequency of divorce and broken homes in our, days, in our day, but we also see it in severely declining birth rates and an inability to get along with one another because we don't learn how to work through the hard times together. So when a generation moves toward the Lord, people begin to realize that foolishness doesn't make sense anymore and it's actually hurting us way more than it's helping us. 
That's the first stanza here, verses 18 to 20. In the second stanza, we see four earth-shattering turns of events. So not only do we recognize that foolishness doesn't make sense, but we recognize that extraordinary things can remain extraordinary. Here's verses 21 to 23. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A slave, when he becomes king, and a fool, when he is filled with food, an unloved woman, when she gets a husband, and a maidservant, when she displaces her mistress. What he's saying is that here's four things. None of them happen normally. None of them are bad things. They're just quite extraordinary things. The earth trembles under these things. This isn't everyday occurrences. Most slaves never become kings. Most fools are never filled with food. Just refer back to the prior point about perpetual dissatisfaction. Okay? Fools will not be filled with food. Tragically, the third one here, some women are not as fought over as others are by potential suitors. And it's wonderful and delightful when a satisfying and godly match is made. And the fourth example, ladies-in-waiting do not typically get to become queen of the house. The point is simple, but it's no less crucial to recognize than the previous poem's point about things that don't make sense. The point here is that to discern whether a generation is drawing closer to the Lord, the wise know to look at whether extraordinary things can remain extraordinary. That's all he's saying. A society of people who live for themselves often want to eliminate all distinctions between people. They are way too envious of the success of others to let them keep what they have. So they must find ways to take it and level the playing field and make sure that everybody is super. Because as the villain syndrome says in The Incredibles, when everyone is super, nobody is. A society moving toward the Lord recognizes that the Lord gives gifts and the lord grants success and blessing and he does not do this in the form of participation trophies for all he grants some people to bear 30 fold fruit and others to bear 60 fold fruit and yet others a hundred fold fruit to some of his servants he gives one bag of gold to others he gives two bags of gold and to yet others he gives five bags of gold and when the guy with one bag buries it in the ground because he's afraid to lose it god takes it away from him and gives it to the guy who turned his five bags into ten and everybody complains hey that's not fair he already has ten bags but the lord does as he sees fit and his people rest assured in simply hearing him declare well done good and faithful servant With whatever I gave you, did you make use of it? So please be wise today when the world discusses matters of equity and inclusion. 
There is absolutely a positive side to that. When we labor to eliminate the poor treatment of certain kinds of people for evil reasons. Okay, let's do away with that. Let's join the fight to do away with the poor treatment of people for evil reasons. Equal treatment and equal opportunity are crucial things for us to value. But in the discussions taking place today and some of the instructions coming down, we're learning that equality is not exactly the same thing people mean when they talk about equity. If what we mean by equity is that people must all obtain the same results regardless of effort or qualification or success. Okay, equality and equity are not the same thing. The wise aren't necessarily brilliant. They just know what to look for. And one thing they look for in a godly society is that extraordinary things and extraordinary people can remain extraordinary. And we don't have to take that from them. Here's another thing. In the third poem, moving on to verses 24 through 28, he gives us four examples of why size matters not. Those moving toward the Lord see that you can be wise without being huge and mighty. So maybe you're not even extraordinary. You can still be wise. Verse 24, four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. For the sake of time, let me cover just one of these four examples of small but wise. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. You see, he says, you can take this lizard in your hands. What he's saying is that a lizard is not much. It's not huge. Most of them aren't terribly ferocious. He's talking about smaller Middle Eastern kind of lizards. He's not talking about like Galapagos, you know, dragon kind of lizards. Uh, These things just scurry around. They live in the corners. You could pick it up. You could capture it. You could remove it, whatever. But yet you always find them in king's palaces. And in the same way, often, when you look at the people of God, what you see is not much. Like the lizards, they're not the mightiest or most ferocious predators. They're not the strongest. They're not kings of the jungle. What we see are those who, as Paul would say later, you are not the wisest and you are not the wealthiest and you're not the, the most brilliant people on earth. But, but as God says in Deuteronomy, I, I chose you because I loved you. And so I want you to live in my palace. And so those who are wise simply are those who are invited into the king's palace and who who live there. Whether you think they belong there or not, doesn't matter. That's that's their home. And so these things on earth are are, are small, but they're exceedingly wise. What's the point here? Well, when the world has gone mad... And it lives to make a name for themselves and survive on their own. 
When the ideal for women is to be strong and independent, and the ideal for men is to never show weakness or emotion, the wise take notice and they consider. Wisdom means not trusting in yourself, but making sure that you can be found in the king's palace. That your home is in the right place. The wise aren't necessarily brilliant, they just know what to look for. And that includes looking to God as the king and his palace as our place of refuge and the home in which we dwell. And that brings us to the poem's final stanza, where we're given four occasions for magnificent confidence. The final one I'm going to look at today. When we move toward the Lord, we'll recognize that there are times for dramatic confidence. Verses 29 to 31. Three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster. The he-goat. And a king whose army is with him. He speaks here of the pouncing lion and the strutting rooster and the indifferent he-goat and the locked and loaded commander-in-chief. The poet, in speaking of these things, he's now simply telling us that when a society draws closer and closer to the Lord, there are times and places for dramatic confidence, for stately strides. This matters when you live at a time in history when ignorance and relativism are considered to be humble, as though we ought to honor those who don't know the truth, who don't care about the truth, and who can't defend the truth. And so when someone comes along and challenges with a surprising confidence, the sacred dogmas of the day, including the dogmas of tolerance and inclusion, claiming that not all paths lead to the same God and not every perspective is equally true or valid, then the elites of that oh-so-tolerant culture must not tolerate such dramatic confidence. See, the wise aren't necessarily brilliant. They just know what to look for. And this last thing they're looking for is the time and the place for dramatic confidence. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ created everything. And that is the reason why all men are created equal. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead in order to save us from our sins and lead us to God. And that is the reason why we ought to include people from every race and tribe and people and language in the one family of God. See, if you lose the, the belief, you, you, you lose the application of it. You have no basis. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ will come back again one day to make right everything that has gone wrong. And that is the reason why it is worth it to try to make this world a better place. And that is also a reason why we can have unshakable hope 
that even in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation, our labor is not in vain. Jesus is coming. In the book of Matthew, the Jewish people asked Jesus to prove himself with some supernatural sign. And he told them that they didn't even know what to look for. They would receive only one sign. And it was the sign of his resurrection from the dead, which would prove the truth of everything he had said and done. But his own people didn't even receive him. Will you do so today? Will you receive Jesus Christ and trust in him as your master? Because to be wise, you don't necessarily have to be brilliant. You only have to know what to look for. And this Jesus, this is it. He's the one. Let's look for and work toward a generation that moves closer and closer to him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we give you thanks for sending the Lord Jesus to rescue us from our sin, to make us your own, one people in one family, people from every nation on earth, people who labor toward the good of our fellow humanity because you created all of us equal. So we ask, Lord, that you would please help us to recognize what happens when a generation follows its heart and what happens when a generation moves closer to the Lord so that we might labor more effectively for the latter and help those around us to come to know you and draw near to you. Strengthen us, we pray, by your spirit and by your mercy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.